0: Wait, dude, we're not in space.
1: Fuck. You guys turned the fucking space on, assholes.
0: Anyway, hey guys, welcome back to Overtly Critical. I'm Corwin. I'm Ryan. And this week we watched Interstellar, directed by Christopher Nolan, which is my personal favorite movie ever made. It gets better and better each time I watch it. I think for this episode, this is now the fifth time I've seen it. And just to start off, you might tell that my voice is kind of shitty right now. And that's just because I got kind of sick, so bear with me, folks. Sorry for the uh, horrendous audio on my part. He had a really,
1: really good weekend. That's all I'm going to say. Interstellar, this is our second Christopher Nolan venture. We uh, reviewed Christopher Nolan film for our second episode ever, which is Memento. I really liked Interstellar. Uh, It's and I said this more the second time despite it being a long movie I never feel like it's long there's a lot of long movies that you really feel it I didn't really feel that in this one because I was so into it Um, and Christopher Nolan's really really good at manipulating time especially uh, or at least using it exploiting it which is great for you know any story or any screenplay and I think there's a lot of things you could praise about this movie especially visually but honestly I think the strength of this film is its writing
0: I mean, like I said, this movie is my favorite movie ever because to me it's just it, – it, it's such a great expression of the human spirit and the, the power we have to go on and rise above our limitations. And to me, I think this is probably his magnum opus, Christopher Nolan's magnum opus, because it, it takes his, his obsession with time and storytelling – to the highest degree because chris nolan understands that time is the master dimension of our lives and everything bad that happens to us is a product of time limiting us and that is what this movie is all about and the the characters just they're so human they're so well written the stakes are so understandable and relatable and they have they stand to lose literally everything the world is going to end but they have the potential to gain so much to like you know bring the human race out of the nest and live in space and, you know, defeat our, um, overcome our fate. And I just find this movie so deeply inspiring.
1: And the funny, the thing about the movie too is like, despite how complicated it gets, it's a very, very simple concept. I mean, there's problems on earth. It's becoming less inhabitable. They got to find a new home. That's basically your premise. And they need this former pilot to help them do it, even though he's a farmer.
0: Right off the bat, the opening shot of this movie is just brilliant with the dust of the bookshelves just calling back to the end of the movie and that's the secret is in that room and that's how they communicate and solve the problem but also i really like how they characterize tom and murph in the beginning and we it sort of sets up through dialogue and how they both interact with their dad differently how they're two different people tom is um He's more practical, more practically minded. He's a bit blunt. Um, He's kind of just like, you know, accepting his life as is. And Murph is this very inquisitive, smart kid who is like actually kind of solving the problems before Cooper does or like pushing him to investigate further. Like he like she's the one who is investigating the room and finds the coordinates and gets um, uh, Cooper interested and I just think it, it, it's a pretty good way to do it because I think it's mostly done through dialogue, like just the way they talk to each other. I really
1: like about this movie that um, the two the two main environments in the film are r- this like rural farmland and space. I find them to be very, uh, very good. They're very similar in some ways, where it's a lot of just open. Land and openness, yet at the same time, you know, rural farmland is this very primitive thing, whereas space is this very high tech thing, or at least our exploration of spaces. And I really thought that was kind of interesting. Where you know, but he's also an explorer there, and he has this big land there, and in space it's more open. It's not really that deep of a thought, but I just like the, you know, the the contrast of those environments
0: a lot. I think it does a lot to reinforce the theme of this movie, which is that. Eventually, whether we like it or not, this planet will die. Whether it's, you know, due to us being unable to maintain it or some natural disaster or eventually when the sun just explodes and devours our planet. If the human race is to survive, we have to find another place to live. And there's, <coughs> there's also an environmental similarity with
1: when they're on that first planet and there's that big wave. It's almost very visually similar to like the dust storms. Uh, almost exactly and it looks the same and uh, that's a very little detail but I think there's a little bit of a moment there where you know Matthew McConaughey's character might have been thinking that too like holy shit it's like another one of those fucking dust storms it's like the same thing and that made me think about how really this film is. it's it's kind of man versus man but there is a lot of man versus nature in this it, it's more the idea that man versus nature isn't even a fight
0: it's we can't do anything about it really yeah it, it is like that quote, though, that um, uh, the younger Dr. Brand says, that nature isn't evil. It's just inevitable that, you know, this is going to happen. I think you could you could probably make a case against the message of this movie that, you know, we probably should be doing more to maintain our planet. Because that's kind of a big cultural debate right now in our world of do we spend money trying to go to the moon again? Do we... You know, you you get people like these billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and from a certain perspective, it looks like these are the people who have destroyed this planet through industry, and now they're trying to go colonize Mars. And that's a fair point that we probably should be doing more to protect this planet, but I think the movie isn't trying to say that it's not worth protecting the planet. It's just giving an example where we already failed to do that, Um, and it's just about— in a wider sense, that human perseverance. Yeah. Uh,
1: I really liked that in this film, kind of like Memento, he's very, really good at subjectivity and storytelling. Where Memento might have been a little more obvious, but in, even in this case, um, I really thought it was interesting how we're following characters who are literally on different timelines, but they're still intercutting, and it, the, the plot beats are still working at the same time. That was really well done. So obviously, in this film, when he, when Matt McConaughey's character Cooper goes onto this mission, he stum, he quote unquote, stumbles into NASA. He goes on this mission. Shit gets complicated because they got to go through a black hole. So, and obviously, being in space and working with gravity, and all these things, time becomes different. And I think that obviously, in every script, time is important for you know making effective drama and suspense. But I think in this film, with one scene in particular, but really the entire film, because you know time is working different on Earth and because you know Cooper really wants to get back to Murph, everything is so much more consequential because for everything that's happening on the ship or on these planets, it's years back home for his kids. And so that's what this film... The, the the center of the film is really the father daughter relationship, and it's so well done at putting you into Cooper's headspace as so many years are going by on Earth, but it doesn't feel like that to him. It's almost like watching his it's like watching his other life without him. If that makes sense, it's yeah. like he he's
0: watching his world grow up without him because he should be part of it. There are two scenes in this movie that made me cry the first two times I watched it. Now I only really cry at one scene in this movie, but they both deeply affect me. And the first one is where after they have the the shit go down on Miller's Planet and they lose twenty three years, um they get the messages from home. I I love that what they do with that for most of the movie up to that point after cooper leaves we don't cu- ever cut back to murph so he does a great job with the script uh christopher nolan of really making it packed just how much time has passed by putting us into cooper's headspace and then for the rest of the movie the second half we are cutting between Kurt, C- cooper and murphy um And seeing them both try and solve this problem together and eventually coming together to figure it out.
1: It's also because when she messages him, that's basically about the time she figures it out. So that's where it makes sense to start back with her. One thing about that scene, not to jump around, though. One thing with that scene that I really liked is how when he's watching his son's videos, there's this, this, like, score. And then as soon as his videos end, the score just cuts. And it's like, oh, shit. And then Murph's video comes up. But so I will say this. This film... Because it is about, you know, not exactly cyclical time, but the idea of the future already existing, that sort of thing, it's probably the best possible way to do setup and payoff in a film. And I know you had said that about Roger Rabbit, but I think like in this case it's it's a little different in that, um it's it's this idea of kind of like how nature is inevitable. It's like this entire film is inevitable because the the pieces were put in place for it to just keep happening and happening, and this happens because it had to happen, and then I make it happen. There's a lot of that in this film, um, which I think makes the setup and payoff that much more brilliant. Because like when I'm watching this film, I'm not even thinking that that ghost is going to be Cooper. But then when I rewatch the film, I'm like God, it's so obvious. It makes so much sense. Um, and, and th- That's why this film is. Uh, not again. I'm not going to say it's a twist, but it, <laughs> it it sort of acts that way where he gets into the the Tesseract thing and he's seeing all these past moments in time and and it's sort of this moment where your brain any good movie does this when it's just all of a sudden as soon as you see that you just connect all the details and you're like oh it all makes sense now. I think this film did a really good job at that.
0: I really like that this film sets up gravity and this idea of them as a mystery that has to be solved.
1: They? Who's they? Because
0: this stuff gets it feels pretty unscientific at times. Like this idea that there's just this weird gravitational anomaly or that these people put a wormhole here and you're kind of thinking that's a little too perfect. Why is this happening? And by the end of the movie in that climactic scene in the Tesseract, all the pieces fall together and you understand that this is the human race. God knows how far into the future, um, fulfilling like fate and setting things up and continuing the cyclical nature of time. Uh, there, there's a lot of philosophy to be read into this movie and science. Sure. There's an entire book written on this, on the science of this movie. Um, interesting fact, uh, the CG model of Gargantua, the black hole at the time this movie was made was the most scientifically accurate model of a black hole ever made. And what's cool is if you look at the photos uh, that we took, that NASA took of the, the black hole in our galaxy, I don't remember what it's called. It looks pretty damn similar. I mean, it's, you know it's kind of blurry, but that it looks like how Gargantua looks in um uh, in the movie because they were that precise with their scientific ac- accuracy. Um, but with the philosophy of this movie, um, it's this idea that time is cyclical and that the future exists and that things are predestined to happen. Because if you are a person who could exist in five dimensions, if you could treat time like a three-dimensional space then you could see what the future has to hold right and that's very interesting there's a lot of questions this movie has about fate yeah i would say on and on the
1: human level the other kind of philosophical (coughs) struggle that really defines the plot of this film is the idea of sacrifice and the idea of greater doing things for the greater good or doing things for yourself and this film this film actually, I noticed this a lot more the second time because obviously the, the big thing in the film is the only way that they get Cooper to go on the thing is to convince him that it'll save his kids. It's totally a personal reason. And then we find out later that Dr. Brent was kind of manipulating everybody because he said, you know, fuck plan A. It's not going to work. Plan B is just easier to do it. We're not going to save anybody. And so he had to motivate people with self interest to do something for the greater good. But I really, really like that, uh, Sort of in the end of the, f- and, and then they come across that man character. Um, although you could argue that he was also being selfish, but still, um, where he's trying to argue for these more like you know you can't worry about your personal attachments. But then at the ending, when Cooper finally gets back to Murph, she she tells him no, like go what the what the fuck's Anne Hathaway's name? Uh, Brand the other. Day oh fuck. Brand. Well, I don't remember her first name, <laughs> but I, uh, Amelia. Okay, but he ends up going back to see Amelia, which is purely a personal thing to do. So it's like the film is totally motivated by these personal interests, but it's the personal interests that actually inadvertently save humanity. I,
0: you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head here. The, the second theme of this movie, aside from you know time and the future of humanity, is love and how love motivates us to do things. And there is this great um, sort of debate in the movie throughout the movie of whether you should do something for love or do something selflessly but gen what what happens in the movie like with man's character is man is a character who has these no attachments he ends up being a complete coward and he makes really stupid decisions that screws everyone over mm. where cooper who is motivated almost entirely by his love for his kids Is the one who makes the selfless decisions, like throwing himself into a black hole to get the data so that his kids can live. Mm -hmm. And on a wider scale, it's also this idea that the people in the future are doing these things for people in the past. It's this idea, and I don't really know how much I agree with this scientifically because I don't know it, but this idea of love crossing (laughs) dimensions. Whether it's based in science or not, the symbolism is very strong. That that's sort of their thematic, yeah,
1: story way to do that. But yeah, that 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 was kind of interesting to me this time, where the whole film is about like, oh, you know, whether it's a good or good or not. But then eventually, these characters following their love, and their
0: personal desires actually is what ends up setting everything right. Another reason I really like this movie is I find it incredibly immersive. Um, I talk about pretty much every sci-fi movie that we watch on this show. Um, how good a job they do of creating an immersive environment, because that's the speculative fiction I'm generally drawn to. Uh, right off in um, the first act, what I really like is the subtle world building they do to set up this future. They there is no exposition dump. There's no long conversation that they have that really gets into what happened. We just get pieces that we can sort of form a greater picture with. Right. Like how. Um, at some point, they dropped bombs on starving people to do population control. Um, that there's no military anymore because that people are so desperate to survive. A really cute detail I like is that in the baseball game, I didn't see this until the first time we watched it together. So for the three times I watched this before, I never noticed this. That's the fucking New York Yankees. Oh, is it? Yeah. It says, like, world-famous New York Yankees. In just this little small-town fucking Rust Belt. Um, uh, Baseball stadium that looks like it's a high school baseball yeah. game because that's just how many people are left in the world. Yeah, the um, the parent teacher
1: conference scene is also pretty revealing, too, of sort of the, the fate of his kids' generation. Mm-hmm. That was probably one of the most interesting scenes to me because actually it almost gave me like Truman Show vibes of like, we can't let kids think they can explore. Yeah, <laughs> we have to make it, we have to tell
0: them that they can't. Um, Another thing I love with the world building this movie is just the the realism of the technology, like it's just the overall design of everything. But uh, one thing that really stands out to me is the design of the robots, Tars and uh, Case and Kip. Mm-hmm. It, it that's so unique and creative. It's awesome. It's like even it's not even like they just they didn't even rip off Boston Dynamics, which is what a lot of like modern sci-fi does. They created a totally unique design for a robot that is totally believable and fun and creative.
1: Something that I I really liked is that despite the fact that they're totally designed for utility and not to look like people, there's a really one of my favorite little moments in the film is I think it was when um, Brant went to sleep and he was like trying to whisper to him or whatever. I don't know. But at the end of that conversation, the shot holds. Is it TARS? Yeah. The shot holds on him. Which is like totally a, a, a thing that a, like cinematography will do to a person. It's showing that that conversation that the rob that Tars had with Cooper is resonating with him, and it's, it was really weird because it does not look human at all. But the way it's shot makes him appear to be human, if that makes sense. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I remember that. Scene, it's like when yeah. they walk away and they hold on him, he turns and looks at him like that's how they shoot people, and that was
0: really weird. It was jarring, the, but the, I liked it. The robots are often used for comedic relief, but. It is kind of crazy how much you come to care about, like Tars especially. Mm. Uh, I just I, I get very happy in the, in the movie where like they recover him from the black hole as well, and mm. Cooper fixes him up, and like this idea that like they um they live together on the farm now.
1: There is one one detail I really liked about the film. Two, well, one scene in particular sort of fulfills two um previously mentioned things. The final scene, or not really final scene, but when um cooper sees Murph like murph on her deathbed um that is not only exact looks exactly like um murph seeing dr Brandt on his deathbed but also that in the film a couple times man repeats this idea you're gonna see your kids before you die or they totally flip that where murph sees her dad before she dies it, th- it was just a really nice little they, they were able to tie that together in that one scene. And I thought that was interesting.
0: Man, that that that's the scene that never fails to yeah. make me teary-eyed. It's just so so emotional right.
1: to and, me. I mean, the, I guess we can talk about the performances in this movie because I think we should. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Matthew McConaughey probably got a lot of praise for this performance. Um, my favorite bit of performance in the film is when he falls into the Tesseract. And you can hear, like, the genuine, like, fear – in his voice like when he's like oh, oh like because he has no fucking clue what's happening and he's totally like he's just as confused as the audience is and you can you can sense the genuine fear of the unknown that he's experiencing and i that moment really stood out to me especially because there's no other sound
0: yeah it, it, it's the pure cosmic horror of space and being totally out of a place you should live in uh A performance that really stuck out to me is actually the actress who plays Murph as a kid. Oh, yeah. I I had never thought about just how good a job that kid did with that performance. Because it it never comes off as grating. It doesn't come off as fake. It's fully believable. And, man, when, when child actors pull off a performance, it just makes a movie. Because, you know, kids are generally not great at doing anything (laughs) so if a kid can act well and like can act just as well in a scene as an adult actor especially a veteran actor like matthew mcconaughey props to that kid man that was good performance let's talk a little bit about the um visual storytelling of this movie and the uh the technical aspects because um there there is a lot of great work there one thing that really stuck out to me with this movie, um, with Nolan's visual style, and something I've noticed in a lot of his work, and something that gets talked about a lot online, is he tends to light things generally with pretty harsh um, far-side keys, and also a lot of edge lighting. Mm-hmm. And it really just does a great job of separating a character from their background, and um, and also for the scenes where they're in space and on the Endurance, the lighting is so harsh because in space, lighting is harsh because, you know, you're basically filled by infinite negative fill. So everything around you is going to, is going to be dark except for what light is hitting you.
1: That's right. I like that a lot of the light was
0: overexposed when it would, yeah. things would fill through the windows of the ship. And the lens flares. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the lens flares. This movie is shot anamorphic. Partly. Mostly. Mostly. Yes. And obviously that just, you know, creates that sort of expected sci-fi feeling that we're looking for with the lens flares. But one thought I had is that anamorphic lenses kind of visually represent relativity because the farther you get away from it, the edges get warped. And I I don't know if that's maybe reaching, but I like to think it was intentional. Yeah, obviously another detail is that
1: this film has aspect ratio changes, which Nolan likes to do. Um, I think probably one of the most, and Nolan's very, very good at hiding it too. Uh, a good example is in The Dark Knight Rises. When he goes in to fight Bane, it's 16 by 9 and as soon as the gate closes behind Batman, it, the the ratio shrinks um, as sort of like a way to trap him. And this film mainly uses it for a lot simpler of a motivation. Where it's, if we're on, if we're in space or if we're in shots, usually exterior shots of the ship. Um, there's that, the t- times where they, they mount the camera to the ship. Mainly those shots. And if they're on planets and things like that, they use the full screen. Or especially when they're going through the, the black hole. But when it's stuff, like with Murph story, it's all anamorphic. They never change the aspect ratio for that. Um, and without, I have a little bit more I can get into it later about it. But just generally, the fact that it's even the first time when we watch the correct version, even though it's uh, it's not always there, it's I noticed it a couple times, but I stopped noticing it because he motivates it so well. Um, mainly because, A, most people don't expect aspect ratios to change because it's sort of a thing taken for granted. But when you're so involved in the story, it just makes sense that when you cut to these scenes of space, it's just a wider field of view. So it just works. And when you cut to Murph... Um, a lot closer, closer in because it's a lot more personal. It's less macro, so I just think I think the fact that I was having a hard time keeping track of it the first time I watched it is because it's it's just blended so
0: well into the story. I I really like in how space is shot in this movie because almost every shot we get in space is from a locked perspective of a camera. It's either camera locked onto something that's moving or it's like, kind of a POV shot, like, over the shoulder or from the perspective of a character. And that does a really good job of grounding us in an environment that has no, um, point of reference, right. really. And the only shots that we are wide are for significance or scale. Like, seeing, um, uh, the ship compared to Gargantua or Saturn or seeing, um, uh, the um, endurance spinning out of control and debris flying everywhere with that great contrasting shot. Um, It's a really good way to not only immerse the audience in the, uh, the positions of the characters, but also keep us from getting disoriented in a lot of disorienting scenes. I never could quite understand why this movie affects me so much. And when we watched it a second time, I think I finally got it. Um, there's this uh, idea, I don't remember the name of the philosopher, but he basically, um, he's a, he's a an Israeli philosopher who makes a point that all you really need to create a myth is to have a story that extends a little beyond its own horizons. Like this idea that it's... the 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 real story is bigger than just what's being told and to me interstellar is a uh, a story that becomes mythical mainly when the tesseract happens because when murph not murph when, when cooper has the realization that the human race built the tesseract suddenly the scope of the story just goes far beyond the the uh the 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 horizon of its characters and the audience, and it creates this grand epic narrative about humanity. It's it really is a mythical story, it's like a legend. And you know, I think there's a lot of power to those stories because they basically it's how people tend to find purpose Mm -hmm. is by having some kind of personal myth. Um, and I think that really encapsulates why to me this movie is just the best of Christopher Nolan's work because a lot of people talk a lot about like Memento being a really creative, solid film. And it is, I, I stand by that. That's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Or, you know, the dark Knight*, which I think gets talked about a little too much. Whereas this movie is totally an original story. It it's got so much significance for our own world and it does such a good job of being inspirational and impactful.
1: Well, I think what helps that along, too, is that we are totally in Cooper's perspective. So when the thing, when, at the ending, when everything's revealed to him, it's revealed to us because we're only seeing his piece of that story, which I think is why, why that works so well. <sighs> you know what they say. There's no sounding in space. <laughs> Dan, it's time.
2: <coughs> you okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. You, you, are, you, you gonna, are you good for the session?
0: Yeah, are you gonna do your intro?
2: Yeah, but you see, I already went to the fifth dimension, and I already planned this out two hours ago to make sure that you coughed at this exact moment so I could do my intro. By giving myself
0: subliminal messages. Are you just using this as an excuse that you didn't write your intro? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Welcome back! Alright, so, I will straight up admit I did not watch this movie twice, but I watched you it once. Fucking and is, hate you fucking... I that you. I'm done! I'm quitting. In all honesty, what is this movie mostly about? It's traveling to space to find a place for humanity to continue on. And as the world has kind of shown through, like, the futuristic digital music tech and stuff that's not big brass band, but also is big brass band. It's like space music or, like, futuristic music does not seem to have, like, its own big beat and it can drag on for a long time, in my opinion. It's like, what do I see or play like hear whenever I play a game about space, or I watch film that has space in it, or anything space? It's, it's kind of like the same theme every single time. It's like long, drawn-out, heavy, yeah. out-of-this-world mystery. It's supposed to sound like something you wouldn't be able to normally Are make. Are talking about the, the
0: music... In this movie or sci-fi music in general.
2: It's kind of both, and that's because it, this is my only pet peeve about sci-fi music, and that is pff, there's like only like one or maybe two relative themes that sci-fi music follows as like law, and that is like like wh- there is no need for a beat if you're just gonna drag it out and have like constant strings playing and you have like timpanies in the back of the band booming. And it's supposed to sound like emptiness that is kind of like emptiness you make a fast going song it sounds like you're right there in the moment and which that kind of works in the case of say being sucked into gargantua when like you could tell the music was getting intense but they showed intensity not through like making the beats faster but by making the music louder
1: i think i think a lot of the music in this movie kind of blurs the lines between ambience and uh exactly music which is probably why it was so unnoticeable for me
2: at certain point if you remember from dark star they had country music out when they were flying into space and that kind of took away the wow it's space that's incredible like oh they humanized it well i mean there is also (laughs) a point
1: in the movie where um cooper i don't remember the other guy's name gives him headphones so he can listen
0: to like on our families Yeah. I I think you guys are kind of missing the point of the music in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I really love the score in this film. I think it's masterful. Hans Zimmer is, you know, bringing his A-game as he does for every score Yeah, and and I'm not saying it's Um, bad either. It's quite well done. The main instrument of this soundtrack is the organ, which Hans Zimmer picked because he felt it fit the grand nature of the story. Because the organ is... You know kind of the king of musical instruments it's the biggest instrument there is um, and it's got this holiness to it and this baroque quality of just you know it's the music of the church and so what an organ does is with its pipes it drones you play you pull out the stops and you play on the manual or on the um uh the pedal and it drones and it goes and it fits the the length of the story and the how long this journey is well right i, I wasn't
1: i wasn't criticizing it no, I, no, I think no, the no. fact that it sounds more like ambience is kind of the point
0: yeah, yeah. whereas okay.
1: sort of how you had said about how the camera work it's more static because space is static it's i sort of
0: see it as the same idea at I, least to me I, I think though like you're you're you dan are talking a to little too much about it being ambient because there's there's moments like um uh, the track uh, "No Time for Caution," which is the theme that plays when they're trying to um uh, reverse the spin of the Endurance after Man um uh, fucks everything. That's such a fucking fast, um, present piece of music. It's just you know you have moments like at the beginning where the score is so quiet you almost can't even tell it's there, and Hans Zimmer knows when to bring it in.
2: And that's what I was kind of like referring back to with what Ryan said, which like. Yes, on the ambiance part, but it's like, instead of a fast beat or using percussion to add impact to audio, it's kind of like, what did he do, like, what happened during that scene when, especially when they're trying to, not port, uh, dock, I guess, like, when they're trying to dock to the Endurance as it's spinning, and that's like the most intense, like, if we don't do this right, we're gonna die, it just makes it louder and it just gets more intense.
0: I, th- I believe that every tick in the scene on Mother's Planet is supposed to represent um, a day. Mm. I can't remember though, but it, it is something like every tick represents it, it represents the um, uh, the time shift difference. It also just like subconsciously is that ticking clock that reminds us that every second is time being wasted and they've got to move fast. Uh, another thing I love about the soundtrack in this movie is the main theme, um, Cooper and Murphy's theme, which is what you hear, um, obviously, throughout the movie, but it's also what you hear after he's thrown out the test Tesseract at the end when, like, everything becomes clear.
2: If if I'm correct on this, because I went and checked it out, I believe that theme is called Stay. As in, it's, it's, it's spelled S.T.A.Y., dot 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 all in caps. It, I,
0: that might be the title of a the theme, but um, the and point it, I'm getting to is oh, yeah, that okay that score n- does not resolve musically because it's in the key of c and it does not resolve on a uh, c chord until he's out of the um uh, wormhole at the end orbiting saturn again that is when it finally musically resolves and that's just such a great like high macro level thing to do in art in a movie is to not give us that resolution until the story is resolved
2: on miller's planet like when they were kind of like crash landing into the water before the big wave struck it was like they landed on like a huge crap load of debris and not that it was like a huge or major thing in the story but it's like that could have been done way worse and i'm so glad it wasn't everything they made the debris sound wet and i'm not sure how
1: i I assume you were going to talk about this at some point Not really much else to say about it. The fact that space does not make sound in this film. It's just such a stupid, simple detail that you'd think would be done in more films. But then again, I think think that's a detail that this film does because the point of this film is to try to say, we're trying to be somewhat scientifically accurate, take it seriously, and that's why they do that. Because it could be a lot more entertaining to hear all the explosions and things like that, but they choose not to do that.
2: Well, I sure am glad I made it onto the spaceship tonight to film my portion of this podcast with these guys. And this movie was very heavy sounding, and I really loved it because of it. The soundtrack is amazing, and you should go watch this movie after watching
1: this episode three times. So it's lesson time now, and uh, Corbin's up.
0: All right, This movie is driven by parallel storytelling. By the dual protagonists of Murph and Cooper. And to me, this is just a great, a perfect example of how to do that because they both solve the problems together. From the very beginning of the movie, they are a team. That's teamwork just transcends time and dimensions and distance. And that's kind of the theme of the entire movie. But just like in the beginning, how, uh, Murph's curiosity pushes Cooper to kind of, like, get hope again, and how Cooper as a father instills this um, interest in science and exploration in Murph, and how also at the same time that, um, you know, they're both having their climactic man-versus-man moment where literally Cooper's fighting for his life against man, Murph is also confronting her brother and trying to save him when he doesn't want to be saved. Yep. And, of course, they come together in the climax with the Tesseract where they're communicating in the room at different points in time. And she realizes, as Cooper realizes, that they've been helping each other since the beginning. Yeah, that, That's what I appreciated so much about this is like – like, they like to say, like,
1: oh you know, 2001 has, like, the greatest cut ever made, which is, oh, my God, it's it's a shitty cut. But regardless, they so like, the time jump. No film has ever jumped <coughs> so much time with one cut. What I really like about this is, like, we're literally cutting between different timelines and, and almost, I wouldn't, I, I guess you could say object or subjective realities. We're cutting between those two things. And it's, it really is just the power of film that we can do that. And, again, kind of like you said, I like that. Things are happening for them at the same time
0: when we're cutting, despite being in these two totally different places. It's really cool how it all comes together. It it is something that I hadn't thought about, really, that um, in most of Christopher Nolan's movies, he doesn't tell things in chronological order. And you literally would lose so much of the story's impact and meaning if you told in chronological order. Like, it just wouldn't work because that's just – it ruins the perspective. And cool. your lesson
1: yeah so my lesson is um understanding that aspect ratio has an artistic purpose and it can be used that way because i think a lot of people take it for granted i think also a lot of people are like well you know the widescreen is just film now it is very true that the origins of widescreen um tend to come from trying to differentiate from television so it didn't necessarily have a as much as a story motivated focus when it first came out. Um but you know earlier early films that used it like Ben Hur and things like that were like use that widescreen. But I like the Christopher Nolan has the balls to actually manipulate it. There's there's a huge argument among filmmakers and cinematographers, especially about things like lens flares. Because some people are like, well, it clearly takes you out of the story because it's recognition that there's a camera. And then some people are like, no, 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 it's perfect because it's it's showing perspective. I feel like there's that same kind of, could be that same debate about aspect ratio because things like the camera or like the size of the screen are things that the viewer kind of just takes for granted because that's just the screen. But I like that he goes out of his way to show you that that is something that can change and it is something that can move. Um, And again, aspect ratios are so jarring. I mean, you see it in movies all the time where they're like... TV shows will do, like, fake widescreen bars. It's like that, you know... I feel like anime is probably anime that. Or, like, like fake... An- yeah, yeah. or, like, animated shows that do that. Like, oh, it's all serious now. But I feel like, in this case, it's done with so much, like, discipline and it's so... It's so motivated that you don't even notice it. And it just works so well. And I really like that. And it also... Because he is changing it, it really makes you think, when I'm shooting something, why am I shooting it like this? Do I need to shoot it this way? What's the best way to shoot it? So that's what I really
0: thought about. It's one of those um, tools that a lot of people don't think of as a tool. Yep. I, I remember I, w- I really liked how Zack Snyder, when he remade Justice League, decided to keep it the full IMAX. Because that's what most movies are shot for now. <laughs> rather than basically cutting it down to, like, an anamorphic style and losing so much of the frame. This movie, of course, is, as well as being this great epic story about uh, mankind and nature and space, it's also kind of a funny movie. So, what what better person to talk about just all the funny things with this movie than Joey? Come on, go throw us off this set and... Uh, you know, steal the camera, lock us out of the room, and say whatever the fuck you want because you you can't stop us. I mean, we can't stop you.
3: <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I have now increased my sick counter by one. I am currently in the lead of sickness. The title is There's nothing. I th- I've actually stopped writing titles, but I have PTSD as the first note. We have we. This is set recorded. Two and a half weeks after, so about half a week's content is now gone from my brain. But PTSD. Come on, daughter, be more like your brother. Be a dumb, simple-minded man and you just want to work on the farm for the rest of his life. Be simple-minded. Never be complex. If, you're, if you if you have a complex brain, your life is just going to be shittier. So literally, like, take a needle right, right, right here, get a lobotomy, bada-boom. You're going to love life more. You I'm just gotta- person. you just gotta take out the right part and not be a vegetable, that's just all- Alright, taking my daughters to school, taking my daughters to school- Oh sh- shortcut! Left wing? <laughs> Left wing? I interpret the dust in this movie as actually the reality if we all saw what COVID looked like. Women when people leave?
1: <laughs>
3: Men? Men? See you later. Alright, Tars, Tars is actually pretty good. He's pretty good settings, so I, I need to put some other settings. Um, Tars, uh, set clumsiness to 15%. Kill yourself. Also, uh, set sex to
0: 99%. That's the Ryan setting.
3: And then set male dominance to uh,
0: 1000%. Ah. The, the-
3: Clumsy, sex, male dominance. Corwin's dream is being put into a rocket, being sent right up to outer space and looking at all the black.
0: <laughs> I don't even get the joke that I- yes, I want that.
3: He, he wants black all around him. I
0: don't get the Pitch joke.
3: It's black. You know what's a good idea? Let's, let's drop a camera in space and let it fly around, float around in space. That, that's how you get the good shots. Oh no, guys, we're just back on Earth, but we're in the Pacific Ocean. But you know which side we're on? We're right off the coast of Japan. You know what you see that but you know i know who could beat that badland chugs Damn, that is- mr matt damon the shit potato man you That's know the funny. only way to r- truly close the black hole is to have a suitable key for it and i only know one person for that
0: <laughs> yes <laughs>
3: <laughs> we will close the fifth dimension.
0: <laughs> collapses the
3: Tesseract with his girthy cock. Well, that's, that's Funny Notes, and I'm very, I'm very excited for the many more episodes of Funny Notes that are coming in the upcoming months. There's gonna be Shut so up. many episodes.
0: That was Interstellar. Did you get all that? I didn't. You might need to rewatch it a couple times. You might need to rewatch this episode a couple times. You know, we'll take the watch hours. Absolutely. But, uh, what, what about next week? What's, what's happening next week? Next week... Well, not next week. What's happening in two weeks? That's true. Um, Our next episode is a movie that I'm shocked took me this long to watch because growing up, we always had this movie on our DVD shelf on the wall, and I was always kind of intrigued by it, but we never I I just never watched it for some reason, and I'm glad that you forced me to because I really enjoyed it, and I think it's a great casual way to kind of cap off our... season three for the show
1: it's uh it's definitely a step back from some of the crazier shit we've watched this year and um it's also a little christmas themed and it's about time we watch tim burton so until then see ya